Welcome to your Active Stack Brief podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week, we take a deep dive into the intersection between technology and geopolitics. For an overview on all things technology in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website youractive.com. This is your Active's Tech Brief Podcast. This episode is powered by Google. Recent research found that digital solutions help enable nearly a quarter of the emission reductions necessary to achieve a net-zero economy in Europe. For over 20 years, Google has been investing in making our operations and communities more sustainable. And we are committed to helping everyone to move from pledges to progress. Today I'm joined by Frederick Eriksson, the director of the European Centre for International Political Economy. Hello, Frederick. Hello, good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for asking. Um, so we are here to talk about uh, technology and how it's playing an increasing role in uh, this shifting geopolitical context. And perhaps the, the, the primary example of that is uh, the war Russia is waging on Ukraine. Uh, we are seeing uh, policymakers in the West sort of scrambling to target dual-use technology in, it, in their sanctions against Russia. But I guess that um, the, the big question mark and, and what we see also in this sanction list is that basically everything can become dual-use. I mean, we are seeing uh, Russia taking semiconductors out of refrigerators to put them into rockets. So in this context where basically every technology can be employed for for military purposes, what role can have economic sanctions and and how how effective do you think they have been so far in crippling the, the Russian war effort? I think it's perfectly obvious that there are strong economic effects that come from uh, sanctions, not by not just by Europe, but by many other countries around the world. We can see it in the overall economic performance of the Russian economy. And of course, we can see it in, in the declining access that not just the Russian military or the Russian state um, has, but sort of problem for Russian companies, for Russian citizens to access the type of goods and services that are now sort of necessary to live um, uh, sort of a, a within question mark a normal type of of life. Um, the um, sort of move out from Russia by many large multinational companies it's had a, a very very discerning effect on 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 the Russian economy. So I think that's that's an important part, point to start with that. Um, when you use broad-based sanctions and when sanctions are coming pretty thick and fast, they do tend to have an, uh, a pretty strong effect. You're absolutely right to say that if we think through um, the modern economy and what modern goods and modern services look like, we can see that the content in them is charged with a lot of different technologies that, of course, have dual uses. Um, you mentioned chips and how chips that can be put into a refrigerator can also be used for military equipment. And we're now seeing the Russian military scrambling 
for different type of technology inputs in order to uh, be able to restock and to avoid equipment equipment depletion of the kind that we've started to see. But I think the broader point here, which extends beyond the, the Russian war right now, is that we are moving into a territory where it's just very difficult to uphold an old-style sort of um, um, framework for how to think about these issues, where you can single out individual goods, not necessarily many goods, but individual goods where you could say, well, this particular technology or this particular good is a dual-use technology. The situation right now is that when we consider trade and integration with countries like Russia or countries like Iran or with countries like China, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about and trading with them uh, in have dual use properties and they can be used in order to mount that type of systemic challenge to uh, borders, to values, to a liberal world order generally, which, which makes it a bit um, arcane to continue with an old dual technology framework. And I think that's why we're seeing, perhaps not so much in Europe yet, even if it's coming here as well, but we're seeing it much more in other parts of the world, how we are getting to a point where we are thinking about a much more broad-based way of trying to decouple from some economies and in the first place avoid that we are going to get dependent on them for their supply of technology, but but more broadly um, for trying to have an impact on their economic performance by denying them access to technologies that are developed you know, in America or in the developed world more generally and that can be used for different type of aggressive purposes, not always military aggressive purposes, but for other purposes as well. Indeed, and um, we will touch upon the, the potential decoupling um, later on, talking about China. But uh, for now, I just wanted to um, conclude uh, on the war in Ukraine, because beyond the economic sanctions, what we are seeing is also that the information space has acquired, a, has become a fundamental dimension of modern warfare. Uh, what lessons can we draw uh, from the conflict in Ukraine in this regard? I think one of the lessons we can learn is um, that most parts of the West were undersupplied by uh, government defense strategies for how to wage an information war. I think we are now accelerating and we are becoming a lot better at it. But prior to the war, we had underinvested in this area for a very, very long time. And I think it's increasingly important for Western authorities and Western governments to understand that battlefield performance and the overall framing of what is going on requires a lot of information activities and a lot of information-oriented investments by governments. That would be my first point. The other point is about leadership. I don't think it would have been possible to impact the broad narrative about what is going on in Ukraine without the leadership from the Ukrainian president. I think Zelensky has had an enormous impact on trying to uh, shape the overall information flow and to shape the storylines that are, are, are 
defining what the war is about. And I think this is also an important point for Western leaders to take with them. And I think we've seen over the past, what is it, seven, eight months now since the war started, that some leaders have been doing very well. Uh, leaders, I mean, leaders in countries that are not active parties of the war, but that are uh, very uh, affected by it. And some leaders, well, they haven't used this opportunity to shine, to put it mildly. So on the positive side, if we look to politi political leaders like uh, Kaya Kalas, um, Sana Marin, um, and even, even sort of closer to home, someone like uh, Ursula von der Leyen, I think they have really stepped forward during uh, this war and used the power of information and the power of leadership information to help frame uh, outcomes here. And both outcomes in terms of what type of assistance they have been able to give, but also motivating people in Ukraine, soldiers that aren't fighting to defend their country. So this is extraordinarily powerful. There are also those that uh, say that indeed uh, the Ukrainians have managed to win this uh, information war, if you like. But my, I, I'm only a bit um, hesitant to, to make such statements because we, we, of course, have the Western view on things. And, and indeed, uh, uh, it would be interesting to see how the, this war was perceived in the global south, um, because that's not necessarily the same view uh, that them. They no, I think yeah, I think you're absolutely right, uh, Luca. Uh, but I, I I still think all these things are important. I mean, and and I think this has been playing out in the success of votes, for instance, in the United Nations General Assembly, where you've seen uh, a. a a growing number of countries that uh, may not be very much interfered with this war and, and that at least um, initially perhaps decided to, to stay on the sidelines of it, that they are expressing a view and they're expressing a view on the basis, of course, of, of established international law. Um, I think we are also beginning to see sort of countries like India, for instance, that um, we're following the traditional neutrality uh, policy in the beginning of the war. And of course, a country which has strong economic ties to Russia, and they want to avoid um, economic and political impacts spilling over to India from this war. But, 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 e but even there, you're beginning to see, not just on the political side, but also in, in, in media and the general conversations of, 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 of Indians that takes an interest in this view that views are beginning to shape or change. And this is partly a consequence of leadership in other countries, that they have been clear. Um, they have insisting on the key points, which are more about international law um, than about anything else. And and I think that's that message is now reflected in more parts of the world than we probably would have thought when this war began. Um, moving on, um, I would like to take a look at uh, critical infrastructure now because uh, this is, has become a hot topic uh, following the sabotage of Nord Stream. 
And all of a sudden, uh, Europe realized this uh, infrastructure, especially the, the marine one, is very vulnerable and it lacks the capacity to protect it or to repair it uh, in case of disruption. Now we have heard uh, Commission President von der Leyen announcing a plan uh, on how to ensure more resilience, but it has already been criticized for not being uh, close to, to enough. Uh, we are seeing France that it's, of course, uh, Europe's uh, most important uh, country in terms of uh, military capacity that is now investing in deep sea um, military equipment. So last week, uh, we are active reported of, of a submarine cable that is being considered to connect Europe to Asia via Alaska, so avoiding the, the Suez uh, Channel. Um, what is your view on, on this discussion and how much of a risk is this uh, deep water infrastructure? I mean, I think there are definitely substantial risks involved and it's, it's areas where Europe or the West or its, its broader uh, alliance of countries that are willing to maintain a good and stable order. They need to invest more in order to protect this infrastructure. I think it's yet again one of many issues that have been neglected, if not dismissed, uh, for decades because of sort of false impressions that we were gradually moving to a point when military conflict was something for the history books than something for um, our, our world right now. We can see that very clearly in, in the Baltic Sea, where the Nord Stream uh, attacks happened. Um, it's, it's an area which has been strategically and militarily subject to underinvestments for a long time, partly because many of the governments in that area have depleted their military capabilities and, and gradually just lowered what type of protective standards that it can offer when it comes to the broader framework of security, including, of course, critical infrastructure. So, but I think, I think this is now changing. Um, most of the governments are beginning to understand how serious the situation is and how fast they now need to change course in order to improve uh, protective capacities. I think this is also what coming out not just from France, but from other governments as well when it comes to protecting undersea um, uh, data cables. Uh, we can see it also when it comes to the willingness to start to diversify uh, data connectivity. Um, I think this is something which informs quite a lot of the thinking right now, um, both on the corporate side and on government side when it comes to satellites and uh, the need to uh, create a much better foundations for our capacity to uh, to use satellite communications in a better way than than we are doing. Um, but but all all of that, of course, is is things that are going to take time to play out. And what we have right now is is an immediate threat, which is on connectivity, and that it's. I wouldn't say likely, but it's it's a very serious risk that escalation scenarios for this war and the way that 
Europe is gradually going to be dragged into it will come through attacks on critical infrastructure like the undersea cables. I would like to pick up on what you said on, on satellites, because indeed um, what we are seeing with the war in Ukraine and, and uh, Musk's uh, whining about uh, Starlinks uh, shows the dependency on private actors and it will most likely give a boost to uh, Breton's uh, pet project on uh, satellite uh, secure connectivity. But I think this this is really an example of how Europe is is trying to become technologically independent. At the same time, it's uh, it's putting on the table very few resources to do that because member states are not willing to invest. I believe France alone is investing more than the entire EU in satellite capacity, for example. Uh, at the same time, the the war in Ukraine has shown how much we are still reliant on the United States and NATO more broadly for our security. So do, do you see the, do you think that the invasion of Ukraine will change the European approach uh, to, to technological sovereignty in one sense or the other? I, I mean, I think it is, and I think it's, it's, it's already happening, but I don't think it's playing out in, in the way that Breton and many others think who are more sort of ideologically convinced that the pathway to technological sovereignty is going to go through industrial policy and to go through trying to cut our dependence on others. Um, I mean, what we're seeing right now is, is a pretty significant increase both in corporate investments and, and corporate M&As in the satellite sector. And this is a recognition that um, we need collaboration across borders in order to build a capacity to provide for this technology in a competitive way at prices that that is going to make things work. Um, I think sort of the, the overall framing of the issue about um, needing to cut the dependence on America because of, you know, Elon Musk or because of Amazon I, I I think this is not reflected in what you're hearing from neither the French companies or the Luxembourg companies or the British companies or other companies that are involved in this, because what they are looking at is much more about building scale, building a supply chain structure, building input capacities, which is going to enable production in Europe and development in Europe to become more competitive in the future. And that's why we're seeing this wave of consolidation in the sector, which is usually cross-border consolidation. We have um, a French company um, who is now trying to merge with a British company. We have a, a sort of a, a British, European, um, um, American uh, uh, consolidation happening as well. So the the way forward here is most likely going to be through uh, a lot more cross-border interactions between governments that you can rely on rather than to think through that we in Europe need to be capable to do all our things on our own because that's not going to be a sustainable future for these companies. Um, moving on, I wanted to uh, talk uh, with you about China because uh, we have seen the 20th um, National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party this week uh, with President Xi uh, restating that China will, wants to unify uh, with 
Taiwan in the near future. So uh, most observers expect an escalation in the South China Sea. Uh, how do you think this tension with the West around Taiwan will play out in terms of uh, digital policy from from the Chinese side, and wh what impact can we expect in terms of of uh, technology? I mean, generally, we are seeing a type of technology decoupling beginning to shape up in 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 the East Asian era right now. I think this is going to accelerate quite a lot in the future. So. Um, Taiwanese Chinese technology exchange is is going to decelerate a lot more than we've seen happening so far. It's probably going to be assisted by actions that are taken by Europe and America as well, which is going to make it um, a lot more difficult to have strong sort of connections on technology sharing or technology diffusion that includes china what we've seen on semiconductors in the last week from america i think is a is, is just one example of things that are going to come um, it doesn't just include taiwan it's include japan it's include south korea and other countries in the region as well so on that sense i think we are moving inoxorably in a direction which leads to um, uh, much greater fractions um, in the market between China and and basically the rest of 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 important big liquid markets in Asia and and other parts of the world, and it's not just on technology; it's on on business models, on businesses as well. Coming back to what we discussed initially, that it's it's just very difficult now to. To single out one particular technology or one particular component in a technology and say this is a dual-use product or this can be used for military purposes or for other strategic hostile purposes, and that's why why business model uh, fragmentation is probably going to happen as well. And I think this is going to be also happening a lot faster in the future than what we what we've seen so far. How 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 much this is going to influence Chinese decisions on if, how, and when they want to accelerate the point about Taiwan becoming part of mainland China? I don't know. I don't think anyone really knows that. I think the what we've learned from from that speech by President Xi Jinping at the Party Congress is that nothing really seems to have changed in terms of. China's general outlook and China's general profile. But I think where we saw much more emphasis, of course, is on Chinese willingness to act against um, foreign um, actions that they think um, have the effect of reducing China's capability to make decisions about if, how, and when Taiwan is going to be included in mainland China. So we are looking at um, much more confrontation with, with China on a host of different issues and technology and corporate integration across borders is most definitely going to be a big one of them.
I see the trend in the coupling that you are mentioning. At the same time, there are um, Western companies that continue to do business in China because it's such a huge market. And that also comes at a cost because uh, internally, uh, China does not respect intellectual property rights from Western firms. Um, Will it come to a point where Western firms will no longer see a benefit in, in being in the Chinese market? And would that mean an effective decoupling? Uh, so sort of bringing this trend to its ultimate conclusion? I mean, in the first place, I, I, I think that the, and it may be a, perhaps a glossy optimistic scenario, but, but if we assume that China is not going to attack Taiwan anytime soon, I think the scenario we're looking at there is is that a lot more increasing commercial frictions, a lot more increasing technology frictions, um, for instance, between Europe and China, or between America and China, or between Taiwan, Japan, South Korea and China. Um, but it's going to be very difficult to unwind an enormously deep and big economic relationship that has been built up over the past 30 years. I think Europe has a trading relation with China, which amounts to about 700 billion euros. And that's not something you can change um, uh, very quickly. It's going to take decades in order to gradually decrease the significance of, of this trade to become less important for um, European production, European jobs, and for European consumers. So this is going to take time, no, no question about it. But I think what is already happening um, and what is important is that governments or at company levels have already begun to make sort of the strategic decisions about what they can do and what they cannot do in China now and in the future, that they are building up much more sophisticated strategies for avoid uh, introducing certain types of technologies in China because they fear either IP theft, they fear uh, other repercussions that are going to come from it, or simply because um, they are forced into a framework of collaborating with Chinese companies that is just going to hand over their future business to, to Chinese producers, producers. So they avoid that. Um, they are making different type of investments decisions now, which is far less reliant on production and development in China than it used to be. And we see this happening in some very technology intensive sectors, not, not necessarily um, sort of data tech or tech which is focused on, on, on the digital economy, but much more technological change that is happening in other sectors, um, renewable energy, uh, transport, chemicals, for instance, uh, automobiles. Um, I think this is going to, we're going to see a lot more of it because companies, they started to read the tea leaves a long time ago. And that is not just the tea leaves um, in, in China, which of course for a long time has signaled to them that this is not going to be a place to where they can, can compete freely and fairly in the future. And therefore, they need to 
avoid exposing themselves to being too dependent on on the Chinese market or on Chinese consumers. But they're also reading the tea leaves in in Brussels and in Washington DC and and elsewhere, which increasingly means that the more business they do in China, the less business they're going to be able to do um, in other countries and other important markets for them. We've seen this been playing out, for instance, in the telecom sector for quite some time. Um, and I think it's just going to accelerate and it's going to accelerate even more if we sort of make the realistic assumption that rates of growth and rates of economic dynamism that we've seen during the COVID years in China will probably remain in the future, which means that market growth and sales growth, they are not going to be as impressive in China as they have been in the past. I know sort of a lot of corporate leaders who have been highly skeptic about their business in China for quite some time, but it's just been too irresistible to avoid it because that has been the place where they've been making money, where sales has been good and sales growth has been good, even if the general political conditions for operating there has worsened. But 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 this has started to change as well, and we see that already in corporate strategies. And as, as we continue to see uh, geopolitical tensions with what have uh, started to be called uh, systemic rivals like China. Uh, what roles do you see for tech companies, very large tech companies, in fact, the, the largest companies in the world that have become actors in these uh, in, in international relations? Yeah, and I mean, they are they are in a difficult position, um, especially if you take Many of the companies that are not just reliant on customers in a country like China, but they're reliant on inputs and components that are being produced there. Um, I think what they want to avoid is a situation where they are forced to making drastic changes um, in a in a very squeezed period of time. So, I think if you look at a company like Apple, for instance, uh, which has been voicing a lot of criticism against the um, U.S. approach to uh, to China uh, on on tariffs and technology. Um, I don't think for them that it's it's only an issue about being fearful of not being able to serve Chinese customers customers anymore. It's 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 equally about um, uh, problems for them about changing an overall supply chain which is serving virtually the entire world with the products. And they need to have a decade or so in order to make transition to a different type of sourcing structure and a sourcing structure that is going to remain competitive. I think what a lot of companies are have problem with, and not just the big tech companies, but, but they are probably more affected than others, is that they don't like sort of the, the tone of economic nationalism that is coming out from Washington DC, or indeed even from Brussels and other capitals in the world, which is that it's one thing to try to decouple from China and to gradually allow that process to play out over a decade or so. It's a different thing if you want everything to be reshored to your own domestic market. And if you're forced into um, making investments that you know um, are not going to be good for your company or not going to be good even for the country where you are are forced to make these investments so this is, it's it's a very big difference between 
trying to decouple from China on the one hand and pursuing a policy which is about strategic autonomy or sort of technological independence on the other hand. So I think from for all parties, what, what becomes important for us is to try to figure out what the alternative to uh, dependence on China is going to be, either on dependence on Chinese markets or Chinese supply, and how we need to avoid a situation where uh, we force um, uh, production patterns of companies where they need to start make a lot of their products inside one country rather than being able to use um, an effective structure of, 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 of supply and, and value chain integration, which would include a lot more production in other parts of the world. So rather than reallocating production from China to America, it's much more important to reallocate production from China to other countries that can uh, be host to investments by American firms, for instance. And I think the same logic should apply when, when Europe think about this issue, which is the important thing here is not to concentrate everything to Europe or to even incentivize a lot more reshoring to Europe. What is important here is that we avoid dependence on countries that are or may become very hostile to us. Frederick Eriksson is the director of the European Center for International Political Economy. Thank you, Frederick. Thanks so much, Luca. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. This episode was produced with the technical help of Evie Curie. I'm your Luca Bertuzzi, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.